Chapter 9, Education and Religion This is pretty deep stuff, Your Majesty. Let us get back to the discussion of lighter and more concrete subjects that are likely to interest the majority of people. I am interested in discussing the things that make people happy and miserable, rich and poor, sick and healthy. In brief, I am interested in everything that can be used by human beings to make life pay satisfactory dividends in return for the effort that one puts into the business of living. Very well. Let us be definite. You have my idea. Your Majesty has a tendency to stray off into abstract details which most people can neither understand nor use in the solution of their problems. Could that, by any chance, be a definite plan of yours to answer my questions with indefinite answers? If that is your plan, it is a slick trick, but it will not work. Go ahead now and tell me something more of the miseries and failures of human beings growing directly out of indefiniteness. Why not permit me to tell you more of the pleasures and successes of people who understand and apply the principle of definiteness? Question. I observe that sometimes people with definiteness of plan and purpose get what they ask from life, only to find after they get it that they do not want it. What then? Generally, one can get rid of whatever is not wanted by application of the same principle of definiteness with which the thing was acquired. A life that is lived with fullness of peace of mind, contentment, and happiness always divests itself of everything it does not want. Anyone who submits to annoyance by things he does not want is not definite. He is a drifter. Question. What about married people who cease to want each other? Should they separate, or is it true that all marriages are made in heaven, and the contracting parties are therefore forever bound by their bargain, even though it may prove to be a poor one for both? First, let me correct that old saying that all marriages are made in heaven. I know of some which were made on my side of the fence. Minds which do not harmonize should never be forced to remain together in marriage or any other relationship. Friction and all forms of discord between minds lead inevitably to the habit of drifting and, of course, to indefiniteness. Question. Aren't people sometimes bound to others by a relationship of duty which renders it impractical for them to take from life what they want most? Duty is one of the most abused and misunderstood words in existence. The first duty of every human being is to himself. Every person owes himself the duty of finding how to live a full and happy life. Beyond this, if one has time and energy not needed in the fulfillment of his own desires, one may assume responsibility for helping others. Question. Isn't that a selfish attitude? And isn't selfishness one of the causes of failure to find happiness? I stand by my statement that there is no higher duty than that which one owes himself. Question. Doesn't a child owe something in the way of duty to its parents who gave it life and sustenance during its periods of helplessness? Not at all. It is just the other way around. Parents owe their children everything they can give them in the way of knowledge. Beyond that, parents often spoil instead of helping their offspring by a false sense of duty which prompts them to indulge their children instead of forcing them to seek and gain knowledge at first hand. I see what you mean. Your theory is that too much help thrust upon the youth encourages him to drift and become indefinite in all things. You believe that necessity is a teacher of great sagacity, that defeat carries with it an equivalent virtue, 
that unearned gifts of every nature may become a curse instead of a blessing. Is that correct? You have stated my philosophy perfectly. My belief is not theory, it is fact. Then you do not advocate prayer as a means of gaining desirable ends? On the contrary, I do advocate prayer, but not the sort of prayer that consists of empty, begging, meaningless words. The sort of prayer against which I am helpless is the prayer of definiteness of purpose. I never thought of definiteness of purpose as being a prayer. How can it be? Definiteness is in effect the only sort of prayer upon which one can rely. It places one in the way of using hypnotic rhythm to attain definite ends by the mere act of appropriating it from the great universal storehouse of infinite intelligence. The appropriation, in case you're interested, takes place through definiteness of purpose persistently pursued. Question. Why do the majority of prayers fail? They don't. All prayers bring that for which one prays. But you just said that definiteness of purpose is the only sort of prayer upon which one can rely. Now you say that all prayers bring results. What do you mean? There is nothing inconsistent about it. The majority of people who pray go to prayer only after everything else fails them. Naturally, they go with their minds filled with fear that the prayers will not be answered. Well, their fears are realized. The person who goes to prayer with definiteness of purpose and faith in the attainment of that purpose puts into motion the laws of nature which transmute one's dominating desires into their physical equivalent. That is all there is to prayer. One form of prayer is negative and brings only negative results. One form is positive and brings definite positive results. Could anything be more simple? People who whine and beg to God to assume responsibility for all their troubles and provide them with all the necessities and luxuries of life are too lazy to create what they want and translate it into existence through the power of their own minds. When you hear a person praying for something that he should procure through his own efforts, you may be sure you're listening to a drifter. Infinite intelligence favors only those who understand and adapt themselves to her laws. She makes no discrimination because of fine character or pleasing personality. These things help people negotiate their way through life more harmoniously with one another, but the source from which prayer is answered is not impressed by fine feathers. Nature's law is, know what you want, adapt yourself to my laws, and you shall have it. Question. Does that harmonize with the teachings of Christ? Perfectly. Also, it harmonizes with the teachings of all truly great philosophers. Is your theory of definiteness in harmony with the philosophy of men of science? Definiteness is the major difference between a scientist and a drifter. Through the principle of definiteness of purpose and plan, the scientist forces nature to hand over her most profound secrets. It was through this principle that Edison uncovered the secret of the talking machine, the incandescent electric light, and scores of other benefits for mankind. Question then I understand that definiteness is the first requisite for success in all earthly undertakings. Is that right? Exactly. Anything which teaches people to examine facts and coordinate them into definite plans through accurate thinking is hard on my profession. If this thirst for definite knowledge now spreading over the world keeps up, my business will be shot to pieces within the next few centuries. 
I thrive on ignorance, superstition, intolerance, and fear. But I cannot stand up under definite knowledge properly organized into definite plans in the minds of people who think for themselves. Question. Why don't you take over omnipotence and manage the whole works in your own way? You might as well ask why the negative portion of the electron doesn't take over the positive portion and run the entire works. The answer is that both the positive and the negative charges of energy are necessary to the existence of the electron. One is balanced equally against the other, stalemated as it were. So it is with what you call omnipotence and me. We represent the positive and the negative forces of the entire system of universes, and we are equally balanced one against the other. If this power of balance were shifted the slightest degree, the whole system of universes would become quickly reduced to a massive inert matter. Now you know why I cannot take over the whole show and run it my way. So, if what you say is true, you have exactly the same power as omnipotence. Is that true? That is correct. My opposition, you call it omnipotence, expresses itself through the forces which you call good, the positive forces of nature. I express myself through the forces you call bad, the negative forces. Both good and bad are coincidental with existence. One is as important as the other. Question. Then the doctrine of predestination is sound. People are born to success or failure, misery or happiness, to be good or bad, and they have nothing to do with this, nor can they modify their natures. Is that your claim? Emphatically not. Every human being has a wide range of choice in both his thoughts and his deeds. Every human being can use his brain for the reception and the expression of positive thoughts, or he can use it for the expression of negative thoughts. His choice in this important matter shapes his entire life. Question. From what you have said, I gather the idea that human beings have more freedom of expression than either you or your opposition. Is that correct? That is true. Omnipotence and I are bound by immutable laws of nature. We cannot express ourselves in any manner not conforming to these laws. Then it is true that man has rights and privileges not available to either omnipotence or the devil. Is that the truth? Yes, that is true. But you might well have added that man has not yet fully awakened to the realization of this potential power. Man still regards himself as something resembling the worms in the dust, when in reality he has more power than all other living things combined. Question. Definiteness of purpose seems to be a panacea for all evils of man. Not that, perhaps, but you may be sure no one ever will become self-determining without it. Why aren't children taught definiteness of purpose in the public schools? For the reason that there is no definite plan or purpose behind any of the school curricula. Children are sent to school to make credits and to learn how to memorize, not to learn what they want of life. What good is a school credit if one cannot convert it into the material and spiritual needs of life? I am only a devil, not an unwinder of riddles. Question. I deduce from all you say that neither the schools nor the churches prepare the youths of the world with a practical working knowledge of their own minds. Is anything of more importance to a human being than an understanding of the forces and circumstances which influence his own mind? 
The only thing of enduring value to any human being is a working knowledge of his own mind. The churches do not permit a person to inquire into the possibilities of his own mind, and the schools do not recognize that such a thing as a mind exists. Aren't you a little hard on the schools and the churches? No, I am merely describing them as they are, without bias or prejudice. Aren't the schools and the churches your bitter enemies? Their leaders may think they are, but I am impressed only by facts. The truth is this, if you must know it. The churches are my most helpful allies, and the schools run the churches a close second. On what specific or general grounds do you make this claim? On the grounds that both the churches and the schools help me to convert people to the habit of drifting. Question. Do you realize that your charge is substantially a sweeping indictment of the two institutions of major importance which have been responsible for civilization in its present form? Do I realize it? Man alive, I gloat over it. If the schools and churches had taught people how to think for themselves, where would I be now? This confession of yours will disillusion millions of people whose only hope for salvation is in their churches. Isn't that a cruel thing to do to them? Wouldn't most people be better off living in the bliss of ignorance than to know the truth about you? What do you mean by the term salvation? From what are people being saved? The only form of enduring salvation that is worth a green fig to any human being is that which comes from recognition of the power of his own mind. Ignorance and fear are the only enemies from which men need salvation. Question. You seem to hold nothing sacred. You are wrong. I hold sacred the only thing which is my master, the one thing I fear. And what is that? The power of independent thought backed by definiteness of purpose. Then you do not have many people to fear. Only two out of every 100 to be exact. I control all others. Question. Let's give the churches a rest and get back to the public schools. Your confession has shown clearly that you thrive and perpetuate yourself from one generation to another by the clever trick of taking over the minds of children before they've the chance to learn how to use their minds. I wish to know what is wrong with the public school system that permits the devil to control so many people. I wish to know also what can be done to the established system of teaching that will ensure all children the opportunity to learn, first, that they have minds, and second, how to use those minds to bring spiritual and economic freedom. I am putting the question to you definitely enough, and since you have stressed the importance of definiteness of purpose, I am here and now putting you on notice that your answer to my question must be definite. Wait a moment while I catch my breath. You have given me quite the order. It seems strange that you would come to the devil to learn how to live. I should think you would go to my opposition, why don't you? Your Majesty, it is you who are on trial here, not I. I want the truth, and I am not particular as to the source from which I get it. There is something radically wrong with the system of education that has given us a balance sheet with life that shows us hopelessly in the red and groping for the road to self-determination as if we were so many animals lost in the jungle. I want to know two things about this system. First, what is the major weakness of the system? Second, how can this weakness be eliminated? The floor is yours again. Please stick to the question and stop trying to decoy me into the discussion of deep, abstract subjects. 
That is definite, is it not? You leave me no choice but that of direct answer. To begin with, the public school system approaches the subject of education from the wrong angle. The school system endeavors to teach children to memorize facts instead of teaching them how to use their own minds. Is that all that's wrong with the system? No, that is only the beginning. Another major weakness of the school system is that it does not establish in the minds of children either the importance of definiteness of purpose nor make any attempt to teach youths how to be definite about anything. The major object of all schooling is to force the students to cram their memories with facts instead of teaching them how to organize and make practical use of facts. This cramming system centers the attention of students on the accumulation of credits but overlooks the important question of how to use knowledge in the practical affairs of life. This system turns out graduates whose names are inscribed upon parchment certificates, but whose minds are empty of self-determination. The school system got off to a bad start at the beginning. The schools began as institutions of so-called higher learning, operated entirely for the select few whose wealth and family entitled them to education. Thus, the entire school system was evolved by beginning at the top and working back down to the bottom. It is no wonder the system neglects to teach children the importance of definiteness of purpose when the system itself has literally evolved through indefiniteness. Question. What would correct this weakness of the public school system? Let's not complain of the weakness of the system unless we're prepared to offer a practical remedy with which it can be corrected. In other words, while we're discussing the importance of definiteness of plan and purpose, let us take our own medicine and be definite. Answer. Why don't you lay off the schools and churches and save yourself plenty of trouble? Don't you know that you're poking your nose into the affairs of the two forces that control the world? Suppose you do show up the schools and the churches as being weak and inadequate for the needs of human beings. What then? With what are you going to replace these two institutions? Stop trying to evade my questions by the old trick of asking a counter-question. I do not propose to replace the schools and churches, but I do propose to find out, if I can, how these organized forces can be modified so they will serve people instead of keeping them in ignorance. Go ahead now and give me a detailed catalog of all the changes in the public school system which would improve it. So you want the entire catalog, do you? Do you want the suggested changes in the order of their importance? Describe the changes needed just as they come to you. You are forcing me to commit an act of treason against myself, but here it is. Reverse the present system by giving children the privilege of leading in their schoolwork instead of following orthodox rules designed only to impart abstract knowledge. Let instructors serve as students and let the students serve as instructors. As far as possible, organize all schoolwork into definite methods through which the student can learn by doing and direct the classwork so that every student engages in some form of practical labor connected with the daily problems of life. Ideas are the beginning of all human achievement. Teach all students how to recognize practical ideas that may be of benefit in helping them acquire whatever they demand of life. Teach the students how to budget and use time. And above all, teach the truth that time is the greatest asset available to human beings and the cheapest. 
teach the student the basic motives by which all people are influenced, and show how to use these motives in acquiring the necessities and the luxuries of life. Teach children what to eat, how much to eat, and what is the relationship between proper eating and sound health. Teach children the true nature and function of the emotion of sex, and above all, teach them that it can be transmuted into a driving force capable of lifting one to great heights of achievement. Teach children to be definite in all things, beginning with the choice of a definite major purpose in life. Teach children the nature of and possibilities for good and evil in the principle of habit, using as illustrations with which to dramatize the subject the everyday experiences of children and adults. Teach children how habits become fixed through the law of hypnotic rhythm and influence them to adopt, while in the lower grades, habits that will lead to independent thought. Teach children the difference between temporary defeat and failure and show them how to search for the seed of an equivalent advantage which comes with every defeat. Teach children to express their own thoughts fearlessly and to accept or reject at will all ideas of others, reserving to themselves always the privilege of relying upon their own judgment. Teach children to reach decisions promptly and to change them, if at all, slowly and with reluctance and never without a definite reason. Teach children that the human brain is the instrument with which one receives from the great storehouse of nature the energy which is specialized into definite thoughts, that the brain does not think but serves as an instrument for the interpretation of stimuli which cause thought. Teach children the value of harmony in their own minds and that this is attainable only through self-control. Teach children the nature and the value of self-control. Teach children that there is a law of increasing returns which can be and should be put into operation as a matter of habit by rendering always more service and better service than is expected of them. Teach children the true nature of the golden rule and above all show them that through the operation of this principle everything they do to and for another they do also to and for themselves. Teach children not to have opinions unless they are formed from facts or beliefs which may reasonably be accepted as facts. Teach children that cigarettes, liquor, narcotics, and overindulgence in sex destroy the power of will and lead to the habit of drifting. Do not forbid these evils, just explain them. Teach children the danger of believing anything merely because their parents, religious instructors, or someone else says it is so. Teach children to face facts, whether they are pleasant or unpleasant, without resorting to subterfuge or offering alibis. Teach children to encourage the use of their sixth sense, through which ideas present themselves in their minds from unknown sources, and to examine all such ideas carefully. Teach children the full import of the law of compensation, as it was interpreted by Ralph Waldo Emerson, and show them how the law works in the small, everyday affairs of life. Teach children that definiteness of purpose, backed by definite plans persistently and continuously applied, is the most efficacious form of prayer available to human beings. Teach children that the space they occupy in the world is measured definitely by the quality and quantity of useful service they render the world. Teach children there is no problem which does not have an appropriate solution and that the solution often may be found in the circumstance creating the problem. Teach children that their only real limitations 
are those which they set up or permit others to establish in their own minds. Teach children that man can achieve whatever man can conceive and believe. Teach children that all schoolhouses and all textbooks are elementary implements which may be helpful in the development of their minds, but that the only school of real value is the great university of life, wherein one has the privilege of learning from experience. Teach children to be true to themselves at all times, and since they cannot please everybody, therefore to do a good job of pleasing themselves. That is an imposing list, Your Majesty, but it seems conspicuous by the fact that it ignores practically every subject now taught in the public schools. Was that intended? Yes. You asked for a list of suggested changes in public school curricula which would benefit children. Well, that is what you got. Some of the changes you suggest are so unorthodox they would shock most of the educators of today, wouldn't they? Most of the educators of today need to be shocked. A good sound shock often helps the brain that has been atrophied by habit. Would the changes you suggest for the public schools give children immunity against the habit of drifting? Yes, that is one of the results the changes would bring, but there are others too. How could the suggested changes be forced into the public school system? You know, of course, it's as difficult to get a new idea into an educator's brain as it is to interest a religious leader in modifying religion so it will help people to get more from life. The quickest and surest way to force practical ideas into the public schools is to first introduce the ideas through private schools and establish such a demand for their use that public school officials will be compelled to employ them. Should any other changes be made in the public school system? Yes, many. Among other changes needed in all public school programs is the addition of a complete course of training in the psychology of harmonious negotiation between people. All children should be taught how to sell their way through life with the minimum amount of friction. Every public school should teach the principles of individual achievement through which one may attain a position of financial independence. Classes should be abolished altogether. They should be replaced by the round table or conference system such as businessmen employ. All students should receive individual instruction and guidance in connection with subjects which cannot be properly taught in groups. Every school should have an auxiliary group of instructors consisting of business and professional people, scientists, artists, engineers, and newspapermen, each of whom would impart to all the students a practical working knowledge of his own profession, business, or occupation. This instruction should be conducted through the conference system to save the time of the instructors. What you have suggested is, in effect, an auxiliary system of instruction that would give all school children a working knowledge of the practical affairs of life direct from the original source. Is that the idea? You've stated it correctly. Let us dismiss the public school system and go back to the churches for a moment. All my life I've heard clergymen preaching against sin and warning sinners to beware and repent so they could be saved. But I've never heard any of them tell me what sin is. Will you give me some light on this subject? Sin is anything one does or thinks which causes one to be unhappy. Human beings who are in sound physical and spiritual health should be at peace with themselves and always happy. Any form of mental or physical misery indicates the presence of sin. Name some of the common forms of sin. It is a sin to overeat because that leads to ill health and misery. 
It is a sin to overindulge in sex because that breaks down one's willpower and leads to the habit of drifting. It is a sin to permit one's mind to be dominated by negative thoughts of envy, greed, fear, hatred, intolerance, vanity, self-pity, or discouragement, because these states of mind lead to the habit of drifting. It is a sin to cheat, lie, and steal, because these habits destroy self-respect, subdue one's conscience, and lead to unhappiness. It is a sin to remain in ignorance, because that leads to poverty and loss of self-reliance. It is a sin to accept from life anything one does not want, because that indicates an unpardonable neglect to use the mind. Question. Is it a sin for one to drift through life without definite aim, plan, or purpose? Yes, because this habit leads to poverty and destroys the privilege of self-determination. It also deprives one of the privilege of using his own mind as a medium of contact with infinite intelligence. Are you the chief inspirer of sin? Yes, it is my business to gain control of the minds of people in every way possible. Can you control the mind of a person who commits no sin? I cannot, because that person never permits his mind to be dominated by any form of negative thought. I cannot enter the mind of one who never sins, let alone control it. What is the commonest and most destructive of all sins? Fear and ignorance. Have you nothing else to add to the list? There is nothing else to be added. What is faith? Faith is a state of mind wherein one recognizes and uses the power of positive thought as a medium by which one contacts and draws upon the universal store of infinite intelligence at will. Question. In other words, faith is the absence of all forms of negative thought. Is that the idea? Yes, that is another way of describing it. Has a drifter the capacity to use faith? He may have the capacity, but he does not use it. Everyone has the potential power to clear his mind of all negative thoughts and thereby avail himself of the power of faith. Question. Stating the matter in another way, faith is definiteness of purpose backed by belief in the attainment of the object of that purpose. Is that correct? That's the idea, exactly. Exactly.